Good morning. If you would turn to 2 Samuel, 2 Samuel chapter 16. If you're using your pew Bible, it should be on page uh, 340. While you turn there, I want to tell you a little bit about uh, my favorite, or at least one of my top three, I guess, uh, movie franchises or series, you may call it. It's the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Uh, so it's, it's a whole bunch of movies, more than just one series, really. Uh, it's every movie that Marvel's made since Iron Man 1. And so uh, if you're familiar with those, then you'll, you'll, you'll know a lot of the, the movies that, that have gone on. You'll know that just recently, uh, the MCU, the Marvel Cinematic Universe, has ended their first kind of big set of three phases. They've ended their first big storyline that started with Iron Man 1 and how has ended with Avengers Endgame. Now, I won't give any spoilers, because uh, some of y'all might not have seen it, and you may still want to see it. Rebecca, I know Rebecca's dying to see it, so I don't want to spoil anything for her. Um, but I'll tell you this, it, it made $2.75 billion over its, over its first run. Uh, it's second only to Avatar, the one with the, the blue people. Uh, and it, like, it's crazy because y'all might not even know what that movie is, but it's huge international. But anyways, it's, it's second only to Avatar, and it's second by $40 million. Only $40 million. Out of $2.75 billion, they're only behind by $40 million. And they're actually going to do a re-release in June. They're going to add some extra, extra film, and they want to really push and try to get that to, to beat that, that record that Avatar has. But I wanted to ask for a second, why was it so big? What made Avengers Endgame so big, so much bigger than any of the other movies they've had. And a lot of people would say because it's the end of this, the end of this story, it's, it's, the, it's the accumulation of all the works done by the MCU for the past 10 years. But I would say that a big reason that it was as big as it was, was because of how they left it off in Avengers Infinity War. Now, if you, I, I don't mind spoiling this one, this one's old. But if you've ever watched Avengers Infinity War, the ending is, is weird for a superhero movie because the, bad, the good guys lose. The heroes, they lose. Not something that we would typically expect from a hero movie. Uh, not something we would expect from any movie that we watch. And it's not something that we expect when we hear stories from the Bible either. And that's kind of where we're, where we're at today. I, I mentioned that because where we're at today and where we've been in Samuel for the last few chapters, it feels like David is, is losing in some senses. David's being pushed out of Jerusalem. His son is, is now gaining ground in Jerusalem. He's becoming uh, what seems to be the king of Israel. And uh, of the passages that I've, I've gotten to preach throughout the last few weeks, I, I seem to fall on the difficult ones. And, and, and I think Matt might be doing this on purpose. But uh, we come to another difficult one today. And it's, it's not difficult because it's hard to understand. And it's not difficult because... You know, it's confusing or anything. It's difficult because it seems like the main character, David, is losing. It seems like he's uh, not winning. And we're used to Bible heroes. We're used to Bible characters winning very quickly. We don't see them down very long, but we've seen a long stretch where David seems to be down. But he's, he's going to have a, a, an upbringing. It's going to be like, you know, kind of the same thing that made Endgame so good was, was the loss in Infinity War. It made the victory much more sweet when we watched an Endgame. There was a moment in Endgame, again, I won't spoil anything, where the whole theater, and I'm sure most theaters across the world, just erupted with applause because of how awesome it was to see this particular victory. And so I think we're going to see the same thing here with David in the next few chapters, how this downfall really makes an awesome story of, of an awesome comeback story. 
Uh, anyways, let's, let's read here, though, in 2 Samuel 16. And you'll see what I mean when we, when we say that uh, he kind of seems to be at a loss here because we're going to see four accounts of men who are uh, either betraying or lying to him or, or just acting wickedly towards David. So 2 Samuel chapter 16, and let's read the whole chapter. When David had passed a little beyond the summit, Ziba, the servant of Mephibosheth, met him with a couple of donkeys, saddled, bearing 200 loaves of bread, a hundred bunches of raisins, and a hundred of summer fruits, and a skin of wine. And the king said to Ziba, what have you, Why have you brought these? Ziba answered, The donkeys are for the, ho- the king's household to ride on, the bread and the summer fruit for the young men to eat, and the wine for those who faint in the wilderness to drink. And the king said, And where is your master's son? Ziba said to the king, Behold, he remains in Jerusalem, for he said today, for he said, excuse me, Today the house of Israel will give me back the kingdom of my father. Then the king said to Ziba, Behold, all that belonged to Mephibosheth is now yours. And Ziba said, I pay homage. Let me ever find favor in your sight, my lord the king. When King David came to Bahurim, there came out a man of the family of the house of Saul, whose name was Shemaiah, the son of Gera. And he came, and as he came, he cursed continually. And he threw stones at David and all the servants of King David. And all the people and all the mighty men were on his right hand and on his left. And Shemaiah said as he cursed, Get out, get out, you man of blood, you worthless man. The Lord has avenged on you all the blood of the house of Saul, in whose place you have reigned. And the Lord has given the kingdom into the hand of your son Absalom. See, your evil is on you, for you are a man of blood. Then Abashai, the son of Zeriah, said to the king, Why should this dead dog curse my lord the king? Let me go over and take off his head. But the king said, What have I to do with you, you sons of Zeriah? If he is cursing because the Lord has said to him, Curse David, who then shall say, Why have you done so? And David said to Abashai and to all his servants, Behold, my own son seeks my life. How much more now may this Benjaminite? Leave him alone and let him curse, for the Lord has told him to. It may be that the Lord will look on the wrong done to me, and that the Lord will repay me with good for his cursing today. So David and his men went on the road, while Shemaiah went along on the hillside opposite him and cursed as he went and threw stones at him and flung dust. And the king and all the people who were with him arrived weary at the Jordan, and there he refreshed himself. Now Absalom and all the people, the men of Israel, came to Jerusalem, and Ahithophel with him. And when Hushai the archite, David's friend, came to Absalom, Hushai said to Absalom, Long live the king! Long live the king! And Absalom said to Hushai, Is this your loyalty to your friend? Why did you not go with your friend? And Hushai said to Absalom, No, for whom the Lord and his, and his people and all the men of Israel have chosen, his I will be, and with him I will remain. And again, whom should I serve? Should it not be his son? As I have served your father, so I will serve you. Then Absalom said to Ahithophel, Give your counsel. What shall we do? Ahithophel said to Absalom, Go into your father's concubines, whom he has left to keep the house, and all Israel will hear that you have made yourself a stench to your father, and the hands of all who are with you will be strengthened. So they pitched a tent for Absalom on the roof, 
And Absalom went into all his father's concubines in the sight of all Israel. Now in those days the counsel of Ahithophel, the counsel that Ahithophel gave was as if one consulted the word of God. So was all the counsel of Ahithophel esteemed, both by David and by Absalom. Let's pray. Dear God, I thank you for this time that we have to read your word, dear God. Even though it may seem difficult, uh, dear God, we know that you are working all things for your good, dear God, all throughout history and throughout our lives as well. And so we ask that you help us to see that as we read today and as we continue to study through Samuel. We pray that we will uh, be able to, to see you as uh, more glorious because of this story, dear God, and be able to praise you more because of it. And I pray that you will open our eyes to see that truth. And all these things I pray in your gracious and holy name. Amen. So the way that I want us to walk through this passage this morning is to, is to actually walk through um, the, these different people in the story who are acting against David. All the people who are acting uh, wickedly against David, who are sinning against David in some way. We're going to see four different accounts, and in those four different accounts I want to draw out three truths about God. Three truths about God that we see from this story, from these actions that are happening against David. We'll walk through the the action somewhat quickly because we just read them, but we'll slow down a little bit and walk through the truth of what uh, a truth about God that we can see from this passage a little bit uh, slower. One thing that we should remember though before we begin to analyze the actions of these people is who is David? Is David just uh, just like a, like a political party that, that you can choose to be for or against? Or is he something different? And the truth is that he is something different. He is the anointed king, uh, been anointed by God. So these people who are making choices to, to uh, rebel against David is not only rebelling against David, but rebelling against the God who has anointed David. Uh, so a sin against David isn't just a sin against a person, it's a sin against his position, which is the anointed king. So it's more than just an action against David, it's even an action against God. And so the first person that we see to act against David in this story is Ziba. Ziba lies to David. Now that's not going to be clear immediately, uh, but Ziba is the servant of Mephibosheth. And Mephibosheth, if you remember, is the son of Jonathan, who was the son of Saul. So if you're tracking along, that makes Mephibosheth the grandson of Saul. And if you remember, back in 2 Samuel 9, because of how much David loved Jonathan, he sought out Mephibosheth and didn't seek him out to kill him as he might would had but sought him out to bring him in and to make him kind of one of his own. So he brings Mephibosheth in uh, and allows him to kind of be a part of his family, to eat at his own table, uh, gives him the land that was Saul's. And then here in the first part of this chapter, Ziba comes and he brings donkeys. He's carrying tons of bread, tons of fruit. He's bringing all kinds of supplies for David and his men. And then he basically tells David that Mephibosheth is rebelling against him. And Mephibosheth is turning his back on him, that he's uh, betraying him. And so this would have been a devastating blow for, for David. David loved Jonathan, so because of that he likely loved Mephibosheth and cared for him. Uh, but he hears now that Mephibosheth, despite all that David had done for him, the fact that he had taken him in and, and provided for him, even though he was lame and unable to provide for himself, to hear that he had betrayed him and to turn his back on him and to want the kingdom for himself and to, to basically be on Saul's side would have been a low blow. Uh, but, and it would, been, you know, it would cause him anger and frustration. And out of that anger, he gives all that was Mephibosheth's to Ziba. But, and then 
what we know now, and what we will know in a couple weeks, is that Ziba was lying through his teeth. What he said about Mephibosheth wasn't true. Mephibosheth hadn't turned on David. In fact, Mephibosheth wanted to go with uh, Ziba, but Ziba wouldn't let him. He left him behind so that he could work out this plot against David because Ziba wanted to gain something off of this conflict. He didn't want to help David in this conflict. He wanted to use David during this conflict to gain something for himself. And we're going to see later, like in 2 Samuel 19, uh, how Ziba has, has actually manipulated David in this way. And we'll see the, the other side to the story. David acts on the information that he has and, and gives Ziba all the things that were Mephibosheth. So that's the first person to act against David, and he does so by lying to David, by tricking David. Next up in the story we see Shimei, who curses David. We're told in, in verse 5 that David is entering Bahurim, and that Shimei, who was a man of the family of the house of Saul, he begins to curse David and begins to throw stones at David. Now this is the king, right? This isn't just anybody, like I said. This isn't just another person. This is the king. And Shimei begins to throw stones at him. And then one of David's men he gets tired of dodging stones and tired of hearing these cursings against David, says, let me cut off his head. Let me cut off his head. That's a pretty, pretty rash thing to do, but he understands just who David is. He understands that he is appointed by God and deserving of respect. And that's why he can ask, why should this dead dog curse my Lord the King? Now, I want you to see David's response in verse 10. Look at verse 10 at David's response. This is his response to uh, Abishai. Uh, but the king said, What have I to do with you, you sons of Zeriah? If he is cursing because the Lord has, told, has said to him, Curse David, who then shall say, Why have you done so? And David said to Abishai and to all his servants, Behold, my own son seeks my life. How much more now may this Benjaminite leave him alone and let him curse? For the Lord has told him too. It may be that the Lord will look on the wrong done to me, and that the Lord will repay me with good for his cursing today. So David doesn't respond how he might think that he would. He's not angry, at least apparently. He doesn't seem to be angry. He tells uh, Abishai to leave him alone, to let him curse. If God has told him to, then who is he to stop him? And it's interesting that, that David doesn't refute the claims that, uh, that Shemai makes against him. He doesn't say, no, that's not true, and neither does, neither does Abashai. He doesn't say, this guy's lying about you, David. We need to kill him. He doesn't say that. He just offers to cut off his head. I and mean, it may be because some of what he is saying is sounding true. Maybe some of what Shemaiah is saying about David is sounding true to David. He begins and ends his, his monologue against David, his speech against David, by saying that David was a man of blood. That he was a man of blood. David at least has the blood of Uriah on his hands, and he has the blood of some of his own family, some, of his own, uh, some harm that came to his own family because of his own shortcomings. So in, in some senses, what Shemaiah is saying about David sounds true. But this brings us to our first kind of big truth that we're going to get from these stories. And the first truth is that God is a gracious and merciful God. That God is a gracious and merciful God. Because you see, Shemaiah the one cursing David, the one throwing stones at David, is right about the sin of David. He is right about the sin of David. 
that David was at least at one point a man of blood, of guilty blood, of guilt bringing murder. But he was wrong in his understanding of God. So he was right in his understanding of sin, but wrong in his understanding of God. Shemaiah points out David's shortcomings and his sins, but he ignores the grace of God. He ignores uh, what David knows to be true about his own life. And he claims that what's happening with Absalom is a consequence of the sin that David had, uh, that David had to done to Uriah and other ways that he was a man of blood. And he says that uh, he basically is claiming, you know, thinking that God isn't going to raise David back up, that he had actually given the kingdom to Absalom, but we know that not to be the case. So he was wrong in his understanding about the grace of God when someone repents and turns from their sin as David had done. And perhaps David being reminded of these shortcomings, being reminded of this, this sin, that he was in fact a man of blood at some point, maybe he begins to feel guilty about that again. He seems to sound this way when he says, even my own son seeks my life. How much more may now may this Benjaminite? So I think he begins to wonder, maybe this really is God's final word about me. Maybe this is true. Maybe this is... Technical difficulty? Begins to wonder if maybe this, this is true, what, what Shemaiah is saying about me. That I am, uh, that my kingdom has been given away. But nonetheless, he does come to his senses and he must remember what God had told him. Because if you look in verse 12, I want you to look there again. We just, we just read it, but look there again. Verse 12 he says, It may be that the Lord will look on the wrong done to me and that the Lord will repay me with good for his cursing today. So whereas Shemai thinks this cursing, he thinks that he is kind of giving God's judgment against David. David sees it as the opposite. David understands this to be a way in which God would bless him. He thinks these cursings may be a way in which God is going to bless him. And it's an interesting thought, and regardless of whether or not David was, was right in thinking this way, it shows that he has a big picture of both the grace of God and the sovereignty of God, because he admits that God has told this man to curse him, or at least he thinks that. So then he says, God has sent him, so don't, don't stop him from cursing me. Then he says, but God has sent him to curse me, and he's going to bless me because of that cursing. So David has a big picture of the grace of God and of the mercy of God. There isn't any you know, comment from the author here. It's just kind of David's own thinking and David's own words. But at least in his view of God, we can learn something. We can learn about the grace of God and how big God is and how merciful He is. And so... When something bad is happening to us, like it's happening to David right here, he's getting stones thrown at him. He doesn't say, oh, why me, God? He doesn't say, why is this bad thing happening to me? He says, God, how are you using this thing for my good? How are you going to turn this bad thing, this, this hateful thing to me, and use it for my own good? So maybe we could ask that as well. But regardless, we see a big picture of faith, a big picture of the grace of God. And however, there is another way that this could be understood. There's no way this passage could be understood. In our translation, in the ESV, where verse 12 says, It may be that the Lord will look on the wrong done to me. Some ancient versions and some older versions use the word iniquity. So instead of reading like, It may be that the Lord will look on the wrong done to me, it would read, It may be the Lord will look on my iniquities and repay me with good. Now if that's the case, this gives a whole deeper understanding of, of this grace of God. It's, it's a big picture of grace either way. But imagine if David did mean iniquity, meaning his sin. 
It, it sounds out of place, but he's saying the Lord is going to look on my sin, of which I've just been reminded by Shemaiah, and He's going to bless me. He's going to give me, repay me with good. So I have given sin, but God's going to repay me with goodness because of how graceful He is and how merciful He is. Uh, he knows the God who returns iniquities with grace, and He reminds Himself of that truth. So I think oftentimes, like David here in this story, we're reminded of our own sin. So David's been reminded. He's had it thrown in his face. You're a man of blood. So we're reminded often, either from our own mind, our own doubts, or maybe perhaps from Satan himself, reminding us of the wrong that we have done. But uh, it may cause us to even doubt what God has said about us, that we are forgiven. But we can learn from David that when we are repentant and we turn from our sin and trust in Jesus, God repays sin with grace and He exchanges guilt for love and He exchanges cursings for blessings. So the truth is that God is a gracious God. That's the first truth. And the second truth is that God is a just God. So we just saw God's graciousness. And now we're going to see God's justness. And a part of God's justness means that while the eternal consequence of sin has been covered... There are still other consequences that may come. There are still other proclamations or judgments against sin that may come. And this brings us to the next two actions that we see against David. But before we get there, I want to remind you of what we read in 2 Samuel chapter 12. This is shortly after David had Uriah killed. When David becomes a man of blood. This is what God tells him. He says, Now therefore... The sword shall never depart from your house, because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house, and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the son. Now this may sound harsh. This may sound like the opposite of what we just read about God, being a gracious God. But I want you to hear also the very next verse. After that long proclamation against David's sin, this is the very next verse, verse 13. And David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. So it wasn't until hearing this consequence for his sin, it wasn't until hearing God's judgment on his sin that he turned and said, I have sinned against the Lord. So even in this proclamation of sin, in this seemingly harsh way, God is acting graciously towards David because it is causing David to turn from his sin. It's causing David to recognize and to confess his sin. And then when David confesses his sin, God responds with more grace. Verse 12, in that, back in, in chapter 12 anyways, he says, The Lord has also put away your sin. You shall not die. So God's justness, His Wrath against sin or, or anything like that isn't in odds with His grace. They go hand in hand together. He isn't just a God that becomes overcome with grace and forgets about being just. His justness is key to His graciousness. Because if He didn't properly deal with David's sin the way He did, then, he wouldn't, then uh, David wouldn't have turned to God to receive the grace that he did. And so likewise, if God didn't justly deal with our sin at the cross... And there wouldn't be any room for grace for us now. So you see God's justness and His grace, they go hand in hand. I think we see that in the life of David and we see that at the cross of Jesus, that His justness and His grace are not at odds with each other. It isn't 
that God is, is wrathful at some points and, and, and just at some points and He's gracious at some points. It's all together that He is gracious and just at the exact same time. And they work together uh, to, to work out His good plan for creation and for His glory. And so I think it's helpful to kind of recount that story back in 2 Samuel 12 because we see here in this chapter the fulfillment of what God had proclaimed. We see... Uh, this in the process as we see two more enemies of David act against him. Uh, and before we see those two more, more enemies against David, we do see one good thing that happens for David. Look at verse 16. Look at verse 16 of chapter 16. Verse 16 it says, And when Hushai the archite, David's friend, came to Absalom, Hushai said to Absalom, Long live the king, long live the king. Now that may sound like, like he's betraying David, but in reality, what we learned from our last chapter is that he is kind of working on the inside. He's going to work to make Ahithophel's counsel no good. He's trying to counter Ahithophel, because Ahithophel is a wise man. But we're going to see here that, that Hushai the archite is going to be working against that, working for David on the inside, uh, trying to make Absalom kind of uh, doubt the word of Ahithophel. And so David does have a man on the inside. And it's interesting then if we, when we hear Hushai say, Long live the king. Because we know that he's probably not talking about Absalom. He's talking about David, the real king. And when he says uh, that, that he will be with who the Lord has chosen, we know he's talking about David, not Absalom. Uh, but we see, though, shortly after that, the, the next kind of act against David. We see the betrayal of Ahithophel. Now, Ahithophel's already chosen the side of um, Absalom. He's already chosen the side of Absalom. And just in that choosing, that was, that was sinful. Because, uh, again, like, this is not two equal sides. It is rebellion against God. And so Ahithophel's on the wrong side of this rebellion. But then he kind of goes over the edge, goes even into further rebellion against David, and he advises Absalom in the most wicked and vile way. He advises Absalom in the most wicked and vile way. It was his idea for Absalom to take David's women in the way that, that he advised them to do. And then finally, we see the act carried out by Absalom himself. So the last two betrayals, last two works against David are the, the counsel of Ahithophel and then uh, the shaming of Absalom of David. And as Ahithophel suggested this idea, and Absalom thinks that he is securing his place as king against his father. He says that his people will be strengthened. Uh, and this position is, of course, in opposition to God. But we see a stroke of irony because the thing that Ahithophel and Absalom plan to do to, uh, to strengthen themselves, the thing they thought was going to be a strategic move, actually worked out the fulfillment of God's proclamation against David's sin. You see here that, that uh, they, were, they thought they were being clever and strategic, but they were actually fulfilling God's word against David. And from that comes our third and final big truth. We saw that God is gracious, that God is just, and finally that God is in control. That God is in control even over our enemies. See, David at this point, he's probably feeling pretty low. David's probably feeling pretty beaten right now. Uh, his enemy, his son, that is, has just taken the capital, taken Jerusalem. But what we can see as readers in this perspective is that while Ahithophel is certainly wise in a worldly sense, and while Absalom has this worldly power, they are both underneath 
and subject to the power and the real wisdom of God. So while they are acting uh, in what they think is an evil way, and it is evil, they are actually under the allowance and providence of God working out His judgment against David. They unwittingly, un unwittingly have just carried out God's proclamation against David. So the bad guys in this story are actually in the hands of God. They're in the hands of God. Not in some puppet sense, but in the sense that they are actually under His wisdom and under His power, under His sovereignty. They, like we see Satan in the book of Job, they have limited ability, while God's power and wisdom are limitless. So we should be encouraged by this. Uh, the last part of this chapter, as far as strategy and war goes, this is a loss for David. The taking of a king's concubines and wives was a signal of a passing of authority from one ruler to the next. But God shows us in His Word that even during what seems like a loss, He is in control. Like I said, David's at a loss right here, but God is still in control and He's showing us that in this way right here in this passage. So whenever we feel like we're losing or like when something's not going right or we feel like the enemy is attacking us, we can remember that God is in control even over our enemies. And our enemies are, are most likely not what David is experiencing, you know, not our son trying to kill us, but they're actually things like uh, just kind of Satan attacking us, making us doubt ourselves or, or things not going as we planned or people uh, acting towards us in a wrong way. But God is in control. And as we learned at VBS, and as I probably said a hundred times, He is good even while all those things are happening. God is good even while all these things are happening. So we have seen three truths from God's Word this morning, that He is gracious, that He is just, and that He is in control. And these are not ground-breaking truths. These aren't mind-blowing truths, but they are truths nonetheless, and the truths that have come from the Word of God. They are true for me and you. God is gracious in that He has prepared a way for us to come to Him and have a relationship with Him. He is just in that He didn't just forget sin, He didn't just overlook sin, but He dealt with it at the cross with Jesus. And He is in control in that He has orchestrated the events throughout time and throughout history to lead up to that moment uh, at, at the cross and to bring uh, a way for us to have salvation. And if you're not trusting in Christ today, if you're not in Christ today, then think about the ways in which God has brought you here this morning and how He is in control of His Word. And today is the day to respond. And if you are in Christ, then be reminded of His great grace and His justness that you are already participating in. And praise God for the works that He has done in your own life. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we come to You this morning and we have read Your truth from Your Word, dear God. We've How You have rescued David from sin, dear God. How You have... Uh, showed him grace despite his iniquity and despite, uh, despite wrongness happening to him, dear God. And we thank you now uh, for the grace that you have showed us and your son Jesus as he died at the cross, dear God. I pray that you, would, uh, that you would allow your spirit to move in this room now, dear God, that you would bring people closer to yourselves, that we would praise you and glorify you for the works that you have done. All these things I pray in your gracious and holy name. Amen.